but I had to remember it. It, it just said scrawled on the door. Nobody knows what they're doing either. <laughs> Which I was just like, that's so true. Thank you, world. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. Oh. Uh, <laughs> We're returning to kind of the DeVos-Trump agenda this week, similar to what we did last year when we kind of updated what were the big moves that were happening in the Federal Department of Education, and so seeing where are we a year from now, what has changed, and what's going forward. It's a policy pod! (laughs) So for those of you who listen to us, that voice should be familiar, even though she hasn't graced us with her presence for weeks now. Roberta. I'm so happy to be here. Welcome back. Thank you, Matt. And Brian's here, too. Uh, Hey, (laughs) y'all. So I think the smartest thing to do is just get right into the topics that we have to cover. And so we've kind of bracketed our discussion to talk about changes in higher education and changes in K-12 education. So one of the news stories that has gotten the most headlines are the changes in student loan repayment. And so what has happened is states have said, okay, we have predatory lenders that Um, are charging students way too much money or like way higher interest rate than they should be on the student repayment loans or that they've made the paperwork so much easier that for students it becomes more convenient to opt into a repayment plan that's going to cost them so much more a month because it's convenient for the lending company as for the students. So states were trying to regulate this so that there had to be greater transparency and the loan repayments had to be centered on students. Betsy DeVos has stepped in and has said that the states don't have the right to regulate these student loan companies. And so instead, they are free to practice however they want to, which then opens up the door for them to exploit, maybe be too strong a word, but essentially exploit students with student loans. And what studies have found is that people that are disproportionately affected by this are people who are going to for-profit institutions that might be like an online learning institution, something like a Trump university. Um, And so there's this disproportionate balance of who's being affected by this. That's a lot of foreground. What do we make of this? So problematic because the big push in education uh, in the United States right now is college and career readiness. That when students graduate from graduating from high school um, in its ideal form should be the starting point from for college. That when I when I exit high school, I should also be prepared to walk into my freshman year at a at a four year university. And I fully believe in. The college and in higher education as an important place where people can learn new skills and, and explore their career opportunities. The message that uh, all of our students should be college and career ready puts a lot of pressure on students who maybe aren't yet mm-hmm. college and career ready. And some students find themselves um, pressured to go to school when they're either um, not emotionally ready mm-hmm. or not um, academically ready we're not financially ready. Mm-hmm. And the cost of college is has been increasing um, for the last 20 years. And so when I take out a loan to go to college, because everyone has told me I've got to go, I've got to go, mm-hmm. I've got to go, and um, I don't have the grades to go, so I end up going to a community college. And at the community college, I have to take remedial classes. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking out loans to take remedial classes that I can't pass and then I don't get my, and I don't earn credits. 
and students are racking up one to two or three years worth of loans and not even accruing college credit. And then they have to drop out of college, and then as soon as they drop out, they don't have their degree. They don't necessarily have a lot more um, academic mm-hmm. background behind them. Um, and now they have uh, a big loan payment that they have to repay immediately uh, on the part-time um, or minimum wage job that they have. And it's I just find this this paradigm to be extremely problematic. So now that you know, it's it's problematic when you're regulating, when those are mm-hmm. fair loans, right? But now um, the opportunity for people to exploit, you know, they're 18 years old, like, you know, don't have a credit card, don't have a checking account necessarily to make this sort of like commitment of paying off, you know, something for the next 10, 15 or 20 years. Um, it's, it's really problematic. Or 30 years, right? Because that's part of the problem is that the student loan company can say, actually, if we charge a lower interest rate but extend this loan to 30 or 40 years, the student is going to end up paying ten to $20,000 more, which is ten to $20,000 more profit for the student loan company. And so that, to me, like in addition to what you're talking about, is what's so problematic about this is that we're saying we are now viewing students – as a source of income mm-hmm. for student loan companies, which they always were. Mm-hmm. But now that price on the education is actually not the return on investment to society, but the return on investment to the loaning institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, my big question for this, uh, or for, for the Department of Education right now, is who is asking for this action mm-hmm. and who does it serve? That's right. Like, what, where are the students or educators who, who are lining up and saying, you know who needs more protection? the loan companies, you know, we need to make sure that they are not unduly burdened with regulation and are unable to carry out their work and ensure as much profit as possible. Um, I mean, it's all part of a larger sort of problematic situation of how much it costs to go to university Mm -hmm. as, as Roberta pointed out in in the U S but ultimately this sort of action being taken by the, the department of ed is only serves to benefit the shareholders of the banks that are making the loans and not the students who need to take out the loans because of the way that we force people to pay for education in this country. And there's other topics that we need to get to, but I just, I want to close this part of the conversation and actually maybe come back to this a little bit later because so much of uh, DeVos's federal department of education has been saying, well, actually we don't want the federal government involved. We want States to have the option to choose to what makes sense for him. But all of a sudden when the States are choosing to regulate companies, that becomes a problem. And the federal government is stepping in and saying that you can't do that. So it's so interesting. Be another part of the federal government who is coming in to say, Oh, States, you can't do that. Like, is that really the purview of the education department to say, Oh, you can't regulate these for-profit companies. I mean, I think that's an interesting question, but for me, it's just, it's a contradiction in the stance that we need to have education be regulated at the state level to then say from a federal level that actually if the states are doing a regulation we don't like, we're going to tell them that they can't regulate that. Like that inherent contradiction, I think is part of if someone's listening saying, wow, you guys are all very critical of this stance without bringing in another perspective. For me, that's why it's so hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And by the way, I just want to point out like your how genteel your language is when you say contradiction, I would say hypocrisy, but yeah. <laughs> That's just you. That's just me. That's just, That's me. just the beard talking. And exactly. Um, and I mean, whatever. Nobody else knows what they're doing anyway. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so <laughs> moving forward, um, the the other thing that she has done at college campuses, which we referred to briefly in the pod last year, is rolling back the monitor, monitoring um, and federal intervention into sexual assault cases on college campuses. So you know, all this information came out about how colleges were covering up these sexual assaults on campus. And so the Obama era administration said, we need to investigate this. We need to be um, more involved in this. And so research was done. Uh, initiatives were set up to do that. The DeVos administration is now rolling that back with the argument, whether or not one sees it as valid, that there has been a problem with due process for men who are accused of sexual assault, saying that these new programs went so far that it is possibly incriminating someone for something that they hadn't done. Often the administration brings up the example that someone has a a sexual encounter that they then regret. And so then they come back and change their story. And so I guess, how do we understand this argument? Is there any, any validity to it or what is the critique that we have of this change? Well, I, I think the, the idea of due process um, as being the, the organizing um, uh, concept here is, is problematic. Like, I think universities can set up a due process um, by which they can adjudicate these sorts of things, um, uh, these, these sexual assault uh, claims and, and uh, sexual assaults. Um, where they're getting into this notion of uh, let the legal process play out uh, rather than let the the university-based process play out. Well, honestly, part of the role of the university or any educational institution is to provide a safe learning environment for all of its students. And if um, there is some... if there is a... if there are charges that are brought in the... within the university that uh, are credible based on their investigations, like, I don't know why universities shouldn't take action to keep their campuses safe. Additionally, I'm not sure where stepping away from continuing to examine this uh, pervasive, ubiquitous, horrible sort of uh, history of sexual assault, like, why are we doing less about sexual assault? That's the bottom line. Again, it, you know, qui bono, who, who benefits from this, well, the, the culture of power. For me, it's really, I'm trying to wrap my head around the paradigm that like crimes can't happen at, at an, an educational institution, right? That like, if this action happened outside of school, outside of a school space, then it would be a crime that the government would investigate and prosecute. But if it happens in a school, in a place of learning <laughs> with adult supervision, then no, 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 it's not something that we need to bring um, a format, like bring formally. Like I, I, I find that to be really disturbing. And I think that especially on college, you know, schools and law enforcement have to work together in many ways. We see that in K-12 schools mm-hmm. when someone brings a weapon to school. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference between a fight that breaks out at a school versus the fight that breaks out on the street. Like there are different spaces, especially when you're working with children, mm-hmm. when you're working with kids who are, you know, 17 years old and younger. But when we're on college campuses, like it's so much more complicated because you you go to school and sometimes you work 
and you live in all the same spaces. Mm -hmm. So there's no going home when you're away at college. Like your home is school and you have to be in a space where you can feel safe. And to your point, Brian, college campuses should be doing more and more about these issues. Um, It's, it's not okay to say like, Oh, boys will be boys or the mythologies that like, well, if, if she didn't want it, then she wouldn't have gone to that party or she, a, a couple of years ago, there was a, a wonderful uh, infographic that talked about women and alcohol and, 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 and it, uh, the CDC put it out mm-hmm. and they said, you know, a, a women um, who, who want to get pregnant shouldn't drink um, because if you're drinking and you get pregnant, it could harm the baby. And that's said women who don't want to get pregnant shouldn't drink because if you drink, um, then you, you will make bad choices and make yourself susceptible to um, potential sexual assault. <laughs> and this idea that like, um, you know, you need to protect yourself rather than saying to, to boys, like, don't rape people, <laughs> don't sexually assault people. Like there is a messaging problem that we have in our culture and and I appreciate that in the previous administration, there was an attempt to say, these aren't just like bad behaviors. These aren't just like kids behaving bad, like good kids behaving badly. These are crimes and they need to be treated as crimes. And the only way that people will get the message that like, oh, that's not okay, is if there's recognition, there's a recognition that these are, these are criminal acts that ruin people's lives. I have a friend um, in college who, who was a victim of date rape and it it had a tremendously traumatic impact on her ability to reach her goals. Mm-hmm. Um, it was extremely challenging for her to, to. I'll say like maybe she never recovered. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I can't say. Well, the one thing that I just want to add to the to the points that you said is that I think also I think part of the intent of the Obama era regulations was to say that universities have to be accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you think about just recently the conviction of Larry Nassar yeah. in that situation, there were complaints that were filed, hundreds, thousands of complaints that were filed, but the university did not act mm-hmm. in part because if the university acts, it creates this message that sexual assault has on this campus. Mm-hmm. If sexual assault happens on this campus, students may be less likely to go to that campus. Yeah. If students are less likely to go to that campus, then the university doesn't have the funds that it normally, right? And so like, there's this trickle effect. And so at what point are we saying that the university has to be accountable to individual students and not just to its standing as an institution, whether that's an institution of research, whether that's a college that students want to go to, it's an athletic, right? Like all those things. And that's what I worry is going to be lost. And those protections, they're there for students and they're there for student against student crimes, but also for staff. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we've seen that play out over the years too, covering up, uh, of misconduct from staff members, whether they're coaches or professors or, or what mm-hmm. have you, that like these are, they're young adults and they're inexperienced in a lot of things and they need support and help and attention and they need structures. But the university needs to be held responsible to making sure that they're keeping a safe learning environment. And when they are not, they need to be able to be um, people, individuals in the university itself needs to be held, held accountable, and, in my opinion. Yeah. And add on to this the layer that the, the vast majority of survivors of sexual assault are women. And this creates a, sort of an unequal sort of educational playing field for men and for women. If women are living with the quotidian threat of sexual violence at their university, then 
they are uh, their ability or their opportunity to get mm-hmm. the same education as men is uh, cut down, and now we're not living up to Title IX. So there's this notion that um, we have to. Men are now under threat of whimsical or, or, or baseless accusation, that there's some sort of rash of baseless accusations of sexual assault that are being filed against men, and we're worried about due process for men. I'm all for erring on the side of protecting women as opposed to, and I mean not protecting women because they're fragile flowers who need our protection, <laughs> but the idea that there is a longstanding culture of violence that women have been subjected to, so hey, let's take some steps to work against that. Um, And so before we go into our next section, I just want to, if this is a topic that you're interested in and you want to know more about what the Obama administration did and kind of the events that precipitated that, there's an incredibly powerful documentary called The Hunting Ground um, that explores this. So that's available to check out, so please do that. And if you're at a university, then there are, most universities are taking, I know like Columbia is, Mm. I know TC is, I know Barnard is, they take these issues very, very seriously, and they have programs in place, so training programs for RAs that like go to someone at your university and find out what the policies are, find out what the structures for support are, um, and just be become knowledgeable and advocate for yourself. Um, and switching to a different form of violence, the the Parkland shooting and the couple of shootings that have happened since yes. have, um, you know, continued to spark a debate about how do we handle mass shootings, how do we think about this, and so we'll actually have a pod in the coming weeks where we delve more deeply into this, but Betsy DeVos has intervened herself in this conversation, saying that states should have the opportunities to choose whether or not they want to arm their teachers, and so in Florida, where the Parkland shooting happened, they have actually already passed legislation that does this, that has said individual districts within the state can choose whether or not they want to arm teachers and there will be, um, <clears throat> excuse me, additional funding should a district try to do that. Uh, the district that I went to in Florida has said that they do not want guns in their school and so they are st- instead using those resources to increase the number of social workers mm. on campus as a result or as a response to this. And so how is this something that we think about? Is this something that the Federal Department of Education should leave up to the states? Should there be a stand that's made? Or even if there's not something, a stand that's made in law, how do we feel about this idea of just arming teachers in our schools and how do we think about that? I mean, I, you know, perhaps it's a knee-jerk reaction, but my immediate visceral reaction is I don't want schools to be armed camps. <laughs> I don't feel the need to erect giant walls, um, metaphorically, um, (laughs) with guns to uh, keep the bad people out. Um, It's, I mean, I don't want to, to, students shouldn't need to go to school in a fortified environment. Um, And uh, I don't think adding guns to that, to the school environment is going to, uh, it's not going to help learning, bottom line. yeah, I wanted to. Um, I agree. Yeah. It's a, Shockingly, yeah. I I agree with something that you said, Brian. Um, I also want to, you know, the one of the complications of the Parkland situation came out that there were um, police officers mm-hmm. who were outside the school who are trained and who are armed who did not enter mm-hmm. um, into that space. 
And whether you want to talk about that as an isolated situation, every shooting is an isolated situation. Mm -hmm. And there isn't any way to predict reasonably what someone should do. I think that um, one one of the questions that you posed, Matt, was, like, should the federal government intervene? Mm -hmm. I actually like like states' rights. And I I buy into the idea that, like, states understand the culture that they mm-hmm. live in and they need to be able to set an agenda for themselves and, and regulate that with as much autonomy as possible. And so I don't know that the federal government needs to set out a law that forbids it from happening. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I do this, uh, I, I signed up for this um, email that comes every day called GovTrack. Uh, it's a go- and, and it basically just tells you any piece of legislation that, that is going, going, Anybody, anytime anyone proposes a bill, they give you a little summary of it and like mm-hmm. who did it and what does it mean, and then you can track its progress, um, kind of schoolhouse rock style, um, into either not oh, becoming anything, right? Uh, and I had no idea before I started looking at these how many ridiculous bills they go out, and a lot of them just say we want to issue a statement that gives our support to hard-boiled eggs. And we want to say, like, hard-boiled eggs are really healthy. And I know that sounds ridiculous. That That's one I did just make up. But I could find a good example for you of something that's really, like, it has absolutely no meaning. Mm-hmm. It has absolutely no weight. It has absolutely no bearing other than to say, let's make our opinion on this topic explicit. Mm-hmm. I would love to see a kind of legislation like that that said schools should be safe spaces and they should not include you know, weapons of, they should not include um, uh, weapons. Um, But if you wanted to have a serious conversation about should there be someone at a school who could could physically defend with violence a bad actor, Mm -hmm. to use the term, then let's talk about school safety, let's talk about security, let's talk about a person who has uh, significant training in being a person who provides security. Mm-hmm. Teachers have a lot to work through. They yeah. are doing their lesson plans. They're doing classroom management. They're wondering about, you know, why Johnny's been late five times. There is a lot going on that a couple of hours, you know, at, at the shooting range to get some kind of certification or nothing, just like my gun in my desk. Like that, I just, it's so far from what seems to me to be like, grounded in any kind of good practice. Can, can I build off that with a personal anecdote? So when I was teaching in Detroit, um, I had a class and a student came up uh, from outside to the outside window, banging on the window with a gun, looking for another student, and proceeded to go down to the other classrooms that were on that side. And so we evacuated the students um, out of the rooms and tried to get them where there weren't windows, walls, that balls could, or that bullets could penetrate. And so... In my stupidity, I then took off running outside after the individual with the gun, right? Because my thought was, okay, like, I need to keep these students safe. That was the dumbest thing I could have done. I am not someone who is trained to handle that situation. And so now we are asking teachers by arming them to be able to react Mm -hmm. in the safest way for students. Mm -hmm. If it is a student that's coming up with a gun and the safety of Mm -hmm. that student Mm -hmm. That feels unfair. Mm -hmm. That feels unreasonable given what teachers have to learn to focus on to be able to do their job well. To do that, that that, that, that seems so problematic to me. And so the idea that someone would want a gun 
at their disposal when they're working with children, Mm -hmm. that also gives me pause because someone might say, well, I'm more trained than you are, Matt. Like I could actually do this. But well, then why do you want that gun? There's a tension there that's uncomfortable for me. I agree. And I, but I think that like, okay, let's say let's, I'll I'll suspend my own disbelief. Let's say that that's a reasonable argument. You want to have somebody at your school who can pretend, who can protect the students. Then don't you want that to be like their only job? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Like, don't you want that to be like the thing that they are focused on, that they're trained for, that they're walking through the hall, that they're, they're walking through the halls to do that, that other people know that that's their job, that Mm -hmm. that's the only thing that they have to focus on. Because in that moment, that's the only thing that that person should be able to do. And that everybody else should be, you know, really able to focus on like, just being safe and finding that safety and not having to like go out on that front line. I I think I want to build on that also to say that we have a lot of examples in our culture around people who have training with guns Mm -hmm. and who find themselves in a potentially violent or threatening situation. And we know how those turn out. Mm -hmm. Philando Castile, right? We know how these situations turn out and disproportionately it's, it's black men and women or people of color who are killed for doing nothing wrong. The guy in Sacramento, Stephen Clark, Clark, thank you, 20 times for Mm -hmm. carrying a cell phone. This is, we're living in an insane time. And the idea that it's safer for kids to have people who have very little training Mm -hmm. and a full-time other job is, is, I I just can't even believe that this is a conversation that we're, I can't believe this is real. Right. So I'm going to cut you off there, Roberta, because okay. this is what if you're excited about this conversation and in tune, you're going to have to turn into our pod in a couple of weeks when we delve into this, because it is so complex where these school shooting happens, who are the different stakeholders and how do we understand that? But returning to some of the other things that are happening in DeVos's agenda, one thing that I want to mention and let's just talk about briefly is We have documented on this pod multiple times the ongoing effort to increase school choice. And so there's not been much change in those policies, right? There has been the increased funding for choice movements or things that might inspire choice. But in the 60 Minutes interview that DeVos did about three weeks ago, there was one very um, kind of important moment where she was talking about uh, charter schools, voucher systems, private schools within her home state of Michigan and how there has not actually been an increased performance based off these (laughs) movements. Data which seemed that she had never cared to look at before or was unaware of or was pretending to be unaware of. And so what this signaled to me is that we are having educational policy dictated at the federal level, which to keep in mind, federal policy actually doesn't do that much in controlling education, right? The way you can think of it is that federal policy will earmark money for different things. And so right now, more money is being earmarked for choice, but seemingly not based on data or educational outcomes, but silly. But, but based on uh, an economic belief system of free market or, or something else that I'm not fully comprehending. And I guess, what does that mean? And how do we think about this? And for teachers in the classroom, how are you responding and working in a space that you're having policy dictated from ideas as opposed to outcomes. Yeah, I think there's a, again, going back to the idea of the, the, the student loan deregulation or, or, you know, the idea here is I, it seems to be that the Department of Education is currently talking out of both sides of its mouth. 
um, the language that uh, is being put out about why school choice is important is because um, it's about increasing the freedom of access, especially for people from uh, uh, lower socioeconomic status, um, so that uh, uh, they are not trapped in bad schools and have mobility and X, Y, Z. So there's this um, embrace of market-based solutions um, that are meant to be market-based solutions to help the people who are most in need. And just the arc of history has shown us that market-based solutions negatively impact those who are most in need, and they positively impact those who have the resources to take advantage of those market-based solutions. So ultimately, like, I am skeptical of any sort of free market argument for school choice because, I mean, we see a sort of like semi-school choice, uh, semi-free market school choice in New York City um, um, among other school districts. But what we see in general is, yes, it benefits the people who already have access, who already have um, uh, the resources they need to engage in this process. But it's the people who are sort of at the most need, who have the most disadvantages, who tend to get sidelined by this um, all over again. And if I can just talk about Michigan real quick, because I know you were going to say something, Roberta. Um, I, I think part of this, too, when you talk about the free market, is the free market is volatile. Yeah. And so studies that have come out in support of charters have said that charters with management organizations, essentially with a bureaucracy similar to a public department of education, seem to have positive impacts. But when you are creating this choice environment, when anyone can open up their mom and pop shop, um, education stop and then profit on top of it, that seems to create a volatility that's really negatively affecting students. And I think in Michigan specifically, where Betsy DeVos has been a supporter of for-profit charters that are not necessarily part of some managed network, but these individual one-stops, that's why you see that that play out the way that it does. And so, I, I, I don't know, that's my little soapbox. Yeah, I- and we've talked, you know, as you mentioned before, about the school choice and helping to break down, like, what does it really mean? Because it sounds really nice on the outside. And I am not, I believe, I do not believe in a one-size-fits-all education mm-hmm. policy. I do not believe in a one-size-fits-all school. Mm-hmm. I think that having a wide variety of choices and a wide variety of school appro- approaches to schooling is essential in meeting the wide variety of needs of our student mm-hmm. population. In New York City, we have 1.1 million children. They come from all over the world, and they, you know, hundreds of languages are being spoken. We cannot have one single approach to mm-hmm. teaching those students. We have partnerships here at CPET with public schools, with charter schools, with private schools, and it's my personal belief that like everybody needs help. I also mm-hmm. believe that. Education will improve when we improve collaboration across schools and not when we improve competition. Mm. That the idea of the education on the free market, on the market and the marketplace and the market based solutions are about if you have a competitor, then you're going to work harder to reach your goals so that you can get more of the students or you can get more of your share of the profit. And that the assumption there is that you could do more. If you are in competition, mm-hmm. but you're choosing not to because you're too lazy. And the reality of it is the obstacles that we're facing in education today are not obstacles that like, oh, we have all the answers, but mm, it's just too hard. I don't really feel like working that hard. That's not the issue. The issue is like 
we don't know. And our policymakers don't know. That's why they keep putting out really stupid stuff like what we have right now. Like, people don't know. Betsy DeVos doesn't know how to help struggling schools because she's never been to one. Which, again, she mentioned in that 60 Minutes interview. If you have time, it is, it is quite enlightening. So, so what we need is increased collaboration. What we need are schools that are working together more to say, oh, this is what's working for us, what's working for you. Oh, great, we'll try that too. We, it's great to have a variety of schools, but they need to not be competing with each other. They need to be collaborating with each other. And the schools are also, they're for our society. They're not for individual people. And so the idea that we're going to take funding for a school, for the institution mm-hmm. that, that, is, that, that is supporting the education of our population and divide it out equally between, oh, you get $50, mm-hmm. you get $50, you get $50. Great. Well, if I have $100,000 and you give me 50 more, that's awesome because I can use that 50 and I can go to this great school that I was going to go to anyway, but now mm-hmm. it's a little bit cheaper for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the person who has, you know, who doesn't have any money and they just got $50 they still have to figure out how to make up the other half, and, and they can't. So to your point, Brian, it doesn't really help the people who, who they say they need it the most. Um, and so I think, I don't know, maybe to end that conversation for now, because for, what I'm hearing from you too is that, I mean, we essentially have to be criti- critical consumers of these policies yes. that are put out because they're not responsive to evidence and they don't seem to favor a system that thinks about all children. Um Speaking of not thinking about all children, the the final topic that I wanted to bring up is one that's kind of most important to me and the work that I did as a teacher and the work that I continue to do in my research. And that has been the rolling back of the monitoring and intervention and disproportionate punishments for minority children. So the Obama era administration said, we recognize that there are disproportionate punishments for students of color compared to white students. And specifically, there are also disproportionate numbers of punishments for male students than female students. And so they said, we need to research this information so that we can make interventions that might be successful. We need to provide additional funding for programs such as restorative justice or other programs that are less punitive and more this idea of how do we correct these behaviors going forward and continue to keep students involved in the school. The DeVos administration has now rolled back those plans and is no longer going to track that data, um, provide that money for these different programs. What does this rollback mean? Um, And what can we see as being the possible outcome of doing this, knowing that you know, if I'm a teacher currently, I can say, well, I know this research, so I'm going to change my practice. But what does this federal stance um, maybe mean going forward for schools and students? See, this this is, you talked earlier about, like, what is the role of the Federal Department of Education? Um, and it seems to me like this is a place for the Federal Department of Education. Like, when I think about, how, like, what why do we even have a federal department of education if there is no um, fed, uh, right to, co- to education in the federal constitution? Well, we recognize that um, when we distribute the power to jurisdictions or those are states <laughs> or localities or whatever, there is an sort of uneven um, uh, application of how education is done. There's an uneven practice. And often, I'll go ahead and say usually, that unevenness tends to favor the culture of power, which in America is whiteness. Um, now, to the extent that um, in some jurisdictions or in some locations, um, and by some I mean all, um, people who are outside of that culture of power are disproportionately affected by uh, punishments, by the criminal justice system, by the um, 
the, the fact that, um, not the fact that, that what seems to be true about um, uneven distribution of these um, punishments that are being meted out, um, there's this sort of myth that there's just like, oh, there's just a, some bad kids out there, some rotten apples who are ruining it for everyone. But ultimately what we're seeing is um, that, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm losing the thread here because I'm so hyped about this, but the, the notion that the federal government um, wants to not continue the research that doesn't want to continue to look into a problem that is widely acknowledged. Um, I mean, it's it, at least they're consistent in terms of uh, um, stepping back from the um, you know evidence-based investigation. But um, um, yeah, and 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 for me, this also like connects back to the notion of, of teachers with guns. Like yeah. that is going to disproportionately affect students yeah. of color. I think I can summarize yeah, what, what you're trying to say. I could use the help. That's okay. I, I think I can summarize it by saying that that this action on the on behalf of the federal government um, covers their eyes and covers their ears, and 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 it, it sounds a lot like la 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 la. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to look at it. I'm gonna put it to the side. We're not gonna look at it. We're not gonna ask questions. I'm going to stick my head in the sand. We're just going to keep going. And it's a refusal to be self-critical. It's a refusal to acknowledge, no, not everyone is treated equally and not everyone is treated fairly and to, to take on that responsibility. And it's an abdication of responsibility. Yeah. And it's a, and it is purposeful. Yeah. And it, and to me, it, it, it harkens back to and tough on crime that's measures. Right. And, and I want to, I want to just emphasize one of the things that I think you were saying um, and that I really agree with, which is that, Discipline policies in schools and how students are treated in school has a direct impact on how they're treated outside of school. And if a student is getting in trouble for, if students are getting in trouble disproportionately um, where the same action is given different consequences, two kids get into a fight. In one situation, the students are said, are told, don't fight, and they get a suspension. And they come back two days later. Another set of students fight, and those kids the police are called and they're arrested for assault. Mm -hmm. That has a direct impact on the school to prison pipeline. It has a direct impact on um, their um, on the experiences that they have that will either reinforce some of these behaviors um, and certainly go to a pattern of treatment. And it's extremely problematic. It's not isolated incidents. It's our culture. One of the things, because I, I mean, I don't want to take too much time because. I would be happy to go on this forever and ever, but one thing that I think also gets missed in this conversation is that one of the most important things that we think about in schools is student behavior and discipline, but we don't invest the time to think about how do we cultivate a culture and how do we help students grow as people, even if they do mistakes, but then also understanding that there's bias in teachers, that things yeah. that yes. are minor mistakes are made to major mistakes yes. when they really are minor mistakes. Yes. I mean, for instance... If a black student talks back, he or she could be suspended for two to three days. That is a disproportionate response to a behavior that if there was a culture in place and a response system to that, that could be effective, that things could improve, but there's an unwillingness to engage with it because that's actually so much harder to me to talk about and rationalize than lesson planning mm -hmm. is. It, it's not this theoretical space. And so what I thought was so great when the Obama-era administration went into this was – 
one, statistically proving that there was this problem that already existed, but saying this is something that we need to fix because we are pushing students out of school by yes. suspending them. We are limiting educational opportunities by removing students from the educational space. We are creating barriers to access a labor market because we are not helping provide an education yes. for those students. And to no longer say that this is something that we want to investigate and to create an equality of opportunity is rather disheartening. It's a very mild way of saying it. <laughs> um, well, there you go then, folks. <laughs> yeah, I just want to make sure we're, we're good to wrap up there. So I guess I've had a lot to say there, and you both have had a lot to say, and I think I've been rather enlightening for this discussion. So thank <laughs> you for your time, mm. and hopefully... Roberta, it won't be so long before you come back again. I know. I want to come back. I like the idea of 20th century, stu- 20th century kids. I'm totes up for it. She's already previewing next week. All right. We'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye. Thanks,